Hello, Taproot listeners. Should we call you Taprooters? Tapsters? Tapinods? Tapas? I'm Ivan Baxter, and today we have another episode in our Busting Myths series. And I'm Liz Haswell. Over the last decade, plant biologists have become more aware of the importance of carefully considered statistics, not just throwing the old T-test at things. Today's guest, Dan Klebenstein, has been part of a movement to help bust the myth that your data are true as long as P is less than 0.05. Recently, he published an opinion piece in Plant Cell entitled Reassess the T-Test, Interact with All Your Data via ANOVA. Today, we are talking about another one of the papers from his lab. For those of you who might not be completely steeped in the population genetics world, a few terms for you. GWAS refers to genome-wide association mapping, a method for looking at the association between genetic markers, which we'll call SNPs in this discussion, and phenotypic traits in diverse populations. So with that, let's get on with the episode. It is really my pleasure to introduce our guest today. He is Dan Klebenstein. He got his PhD at Cornell with Rob Last and did a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute with Dr. Thomas Mitchell Olds and Jonathan Gerjon. And then he moved on to the University of California at Davis, where he has progressed through the ranks and is now a full professor. And he's also a DG visiting professor at the University of Copenhagen, where he's had an appointment for many years as well. Dan is an editor at four different journals, including Plant Cell and eLife, which I think is just crazy, and I don't know how he has the time. And he has published so many papers that I, I couldn't actually get a count from his CV. And there comes at things from a very different approach. I've always had really fascinating conversations with Dan, and I know we're going to have another one today. So he has a, a very active Twitter account where he spouts many of these interesting ideas. So Dan Klebenstein, welcome to the Taproot. Thanks for having me. Dan, it's so awesome to have you here. Like Ivan said, I really always enjoy following you on Twitter, reading your papers, and seeing your seminars. Okay, so today's paper is a pretty recent paper to come out of Dan's lab called The Quantitative Basis of the Arabidopsis Innate Immune System to Endemic Pathogens Depends on Pathogen Genetics. The first author is Jason Corwin, and it came out in 2016 in PLOS Genetics. So Dan, you want to just give us a brief overview of what this paper was about? Sure. I, I have to work on titles, don't I? That was a long one. We all have to work on titles. Yeah, so this was like the semi-culmination of about 10 years of work that started when Catherine Denby actually did a sabbatical in the lab, and then through Heather Rowe, a grad student, and then Jason. And so he was interested in basically like, he wanted to get at like just how many genes actually control a host pathogen interaction and what might their identity be. And so most of the field was using specialist biotrophs like Pseudomonas or something like that. And so, of course, we had to say, let's just do the complete opposite and use a generalist necrotroph that basically eats anything that has a chloroplast. This was Botrytis um, scenario. And Jason and Heather had been playing around and they had been noticing that there was tons of like genetic variation in the pathogen itself, almost more than in like most plant species even. And so Jason added a third question in addition to how many genes and what they are. He said, like, how does the pathogen actually like influence the answer you find from the plant? And so then he took these four 
diverse botrytis isolates, put them on 100 or so Arabidopsis accessions, and basically did GWAS. There were some specific genes we found, but we feel more comfortable in sort of the general conclusions that it says there's about 100 to several thousand genes in the plant that's actually naturally variable and affecting the interaction. Which pathogen you actually use shifts the specific host genes you find. And it's mostly genes that are not in sort of like the classical ETI, AMP, PAMP, MAP kinase pathways. It's actually like the cell wall genes, the plant toxin genes, the things that are actually doing the resistance and not signaling the resistance, which is kind of different than a biotrophic view and the general view of the committee that the important stuff was the signaling and the downstream stuff was kind of the boring worker ants. And at least in this case, it looked like the downstream stuff was actually playing more of a role than the upstream stuff in natural variation. So why, why do you think you found genes associated with downstream responses rather than the known signaling pathways? Is it like the difference between looking for gene expression patterns versus all the other people were doing genetic screens? I don't think it's the mutant screen aspect because in Jane Glazebrook's old phytolexin deficient mutant screens, it was about half signaling and half actual chemolexin biosynthesis. I think it's more if you want to get a big paper, you don't want boring old enzyme. You kind of want like this transcription factor. And then of course you call it a master regulator, right? So I, I think it's more what we consider exciting or interesting. So it's a choice of what to follow up on in some ways? Yeah, it's a choice of what to follow up on, especially like if you get a cell wall modifying enzyme, they are really hard to figure out what they exactly do and why they exactly have an effect. Whereas if you have a transcription factor, you at least have like IMSAs and all sorts of specific assays that you can do that'll walk you towards a clearer answer. There was a great paper that came out two weeks ago in PLOS Biology looking at human genetics and showing how there's a huge bias in which genes we study in humans towards a couple thousand already known genes. Similar one about six years ago in yeast, where they showed that the same thing was true in yeast. And I think they might have even done the same work in E. coli. So it's not just a bias in humans. It looks like it's an issue in every organism that's just studied. No, I, I don't think it was a bias in studying humans. I think it's a human bias in how we study organisms. Yeah. You did all this complicated genetics, and I know that you love complicated interactions. Did it bother you? You were only able to do four isolates of the, of the fungus and not be able to do like genetics of the fungus versus the genetics of the plant? It bothered me, but the reason we did the four was when we sat down and we did the math, we realized we could contemplate doing the hundred by hundred matrix, but we'd have no power for anything. And so then we focused on just the four to get an answer on that little aspect of the interaction. And then we flipped it to a hundred isolates with three plants to get a little view of that. And then the other reason we only did the four is we weren't sure if doing it in Arabidopsis was even the right place to do it. And that's why we went to these other dicots to try to ask, like, if we just start putting in all of the plant phylogeny, where should we have asked the question? Yeah, super exciting. There's something I wanted to to follow up on. You mentioned that you were more comfortable with this paper saying about how many genes, not as much the specific identity of the genes. Once you get to the specific identity, basically what we found was it was that started becoming really isolate specific. And then another a master student took Jason's image analysis and just said, let's not measure, let's not use lesion size as our measurement of whether a mutant has an effect. Let's use the shape of the lesion or the color of the lesion. And all of a sudden that started saying like, we went from a 50% success rate to like 80% of the mutants were having an effect on 
different aspects of the lesion. One question I had for you is you have this very complicated set of experiments. There's a bunch of assumptions you made about what would take for you to say, we think that this gene is one of the set involved in this process. And you you definitely went in and tested some of those assumptions by modifying parameters and seeing if it changed the result. And in general, it didn't too much. But there's a lot of sort of judgment calls that you have to make here. And so there's ambiguity. And how do you how do you deal with that ambiguity when you're trying to pull a paper like this together and, and publish it? My sister's a lawyer and she's comfortable with the idea that you make an argument based on like hundreds to at least tens to hundreds of legal cases precedents before that. And oftentimes it feels like in science, we've kind of lost that uh-huh. use of the existing literature. And so, for example, in this paper, a lot of the ambiguous choices like two or more SNPs per gene actually came from previous papers on glucosinolates where we had previously cloned genes via QTL mapping for the past decade. And so then we went to GWAS with glucosinolates. We had this collection of like 10 to 20 empirically validated genes we knew had to be there. So we had this positive control set. And so then we used those genes with glucosinolates to ask like, how would we adjust the parameters to maximize our ability to see those genes? And then we took that and we translated it to the botrytis. And so they're the biggest, probably the biggest ambiguous choice was we assumed glucosilence and botrytis GWATs hits would have some sort of similar genetic architecture. And that part we didn't have an ability to test. But what if you're, st- what if you're starting out without that background? You're, you have to decide for yourself on this sliding scale, like how many possible false negatives you're willing to tolerate and how many false positives you're willing to tolerate. And then, I don't know, you're using statistics to try to find your way through a bunch of data. Then you have to be figure out who you are. I thought you just had to make sure that P was less than 0.05 and then you were done, right? No, you have to, f- you have to think about like how much effort do you want to put in? Like, do you want to test like 40 tDNA mutants or do you want to test like the most interesting tDNA mutant? Because oftentimes, I mean, unfortunately, I don't get like a Ivan Baxter ionomics massive single three hit GWAS hits ever. <laughs> I never get those anymore anyway. Yeah. And, and I've always had this sort of like got 100 to 1,000 genes just sort of at the threshold. And so we kind of had to ask like, so we don't have any reason to say one gene is really more interesting or less interesting than another. And then it became how much effort did Jason actually want to put in, right? Could I get him to do 100 tDNA mutants or could I? And so then that became like, okay, let's settle on about 20. And then we actually did make a choice there and said, let's focus on genes that have never been associated with the pathogen. So we actually took GWAS hits that were in known genes and didn't test them because we figured the goal was to find new pathways. And then we just said, we're going to have some false negatives, we're going to have some false positives, and we'll just throw the old ugly mess out there and people can take with it what they want. And in this case, it seemed like about 50% of the genes you tested had a phenotype. And you mentioned that if you get more creative with your phenotyping, you think maybe 80%? Yeah, it goes up. And there's also a background effect because these are tDNA mutants only in Colombia. And so Colombia might actually be the wrong background for some genes to even have a visible phenotype or a detectable phenotype. And then that would get to sort of Liz's questions on negative controls. Like, we honestly don't know what would happen if we took a hundred random, like single gene specific knockout mutants with nothing else in the background and tested them for resistance to anything. Right. That's really interesting. So we don't really have that sort of true, absolute negative idea of like, do we have genes that we know don't affect a phenotype? Because like, if you go to the circadian clock, you 
start playing around and you start realizing all these like peripheral things have influences of like 30 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour flowering time. There was a recent paper that showed like they could find tons of mutants that were affecting flowering time. And so you start to get to the point like, is pleiotropy really rampant or are we all just doing the experiments wrong? How should people get around that? How does a field handle this issue of pleiotropy is bad, you should have one phenotype versus pleiotropy is on the other end of the scale. Pleiotropy is inevitable because that's the way that's the way organisms evolve. Dan, what's the way forward? <laughs> the way forward would probably be getting both sides to agree on an experiment that they would accept. So a registered report? Yeah. Well, let's zoom out a little bit and just talk a little bit more about statistics. Like you do tons of statistics in all of your papers. This is like where your heart and soul is. Like what's your philosophy about all of that? It's kind of like we have a big enology and wine department here and they have kind of an argument, junk grapes, junk wine. Uh So if you think of the wine as the statistics, the grapes would be the experimental design. And so for us, it's all, we worry as much about the experimental design as we do about the statistics. And so we will have like, for Botrytis, we'll have like eight replications per experiment, and then we'll try to do three separate experiments at three separate times. And the benefit of that is you can look at the amount of difference between your genotypes And then you can look at the amount of difference between your different experiments. And that gives you an idea of like, was the experiment variation really strong Mm -hmm. and the genotype was significant, but it wasn't quite as strong. And so then that lets you say like, at least that lets us feel more comfortable in saying, yes, this gene probably has an effect, but it's not very big. And so then we worry less about the p-value. The p-value is just sort of a guideline that lets us get the reviewers to buy into it. And then we look more at like where the variance or the effect size is. That really depends on the reviewer community we're also expecting. Yeah, but so why why is everybody so fixated on p less than 0.05? Like what? why is that the cutoff? And how has our field gotten to the point where you just, you know, I'm not saying that we do this, but... Like you can see people continuing to do experiments until they reach that point. That part I don't know about. We usually have our experiments every once in a while. What we have is like if we have P equals 0.05 and we're like, "Eh, I don't know. We'll actually say just repeat the whole thing over. And if there's a real signal, the P value should go down. And if there's no signal and we were just randomly sampling, then we should get the p-value go up. Because the idea that if you do more and more experiments, the p-value keeps going down and down and down is only true if there is a signal. Right. Yeah, I get that. I guess I'm just trying to ask a more sort of philosophical question about, like, I feel like people rely on p-values because we're uncomfortable with small differences and because there's so much inherent variability in biological systems as it is, we're like really looking for ways to distinguish variability from meaningful difference. Does that make sense? Well, right. It's the same thing as why do you do a transcriptomics and you say p-value equals 0.05 and a two-fold difference. Right. Right. And so that's because in the early microarray experiments, they didn't do stats, so they just relied on the two-fold threshold. And then they're like, oh, that's kind of arbitrary. And then they said, let's put a p-value in. Yeah. And that was, that was also because you could only do single microarrays for what we now would pay for a full RNA-seq experiment. Or hundreds of them if you pool them, yeah. And so yeah. I, I think it's just, I think it gets more to that idea of like, there's so much variance out there that we want to use a threshold as like, as like a little blanket for Linus to make us feel comfortable. 
Yeah, I think this is when we make that the bar to publication and are not willing to let people have ambiguity at the end of their papers, it makes it harder to just keep moving the field forward. When I was growing up and reading the first issues of Plant Cell, the last paragraph of papers used to be like, what haven't we shown or what questions have we raised and what needs to be done in the future? And that used to be the way in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, like papers were written. What did we find? What do we have no clue about? What's confusing? What do we do next? Now it seems like discussions are just, what did we find? Boom. And so then having absolute p-values to make absolute claims, and it kind of fits into that. And oftentimes, right, if I've seen papers that use like a multi-prong argument step, like we have point A, B, C, and D in these independent experiments, and they support this claim, oftentimes readers nowadays don't seem to grab onto that. They want the single figure that makes that claim. And then once you have a single figure desire, then you have a single p-value desire or a single effects value desire. And sort of that more complicated developing an argument seems to have disappeared or is not as received anymore. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, I know exactly what you mean. We've written papers where we say, you know, here's evidence. So we're going we're gonna to test this hypothesis. Here's evidence, number one, that it's correct. But of course, it could also be that. So here's evidence, number two, that it could be correct but it could also be this, but here's evidence three, but it could be that. So, but taken together, you know, the Venn diagram of all the possible explanations for all of these observations is our original hypothesis. Those are hard papers to write and hard papers to convince people to, to publish for sure. I know as an editor, it's, I mean, there's the p-value issue and it's kind of related to the desire for more mechanistic detail on papers. And so as an editor, when a reviewer comes back and says, like, this one point hasn't been fully proven, I've actually started asking myself and asking the reviewer oftentimes, like, okay, what if you just pull that entirely out of the paper? Does the story really fall apart? Right, 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 right. And most of the times the story doesn't fall apart if that one thing that is really bugging somebody is taken out or caveated or stuff. I have to do it as an editor, paper by paper, reviewer by reviewer and have that discussion with everybody time by time. Because we've all had like that review come at us. And so once you have that review come at you like 10, 20, 30 times, it's just natural human nature to turn around and kind of do that back, even if it wasn't the person doing it to you. It sort of trains you as to what a review is supposed to be. Exactly. You've got this set of like reviewer responses in your pocket, right? One is... Well, they've described a phenomenon, but they haven't really made an molecular explanation or mechanism for it, or their statistics don't match P equals 0.05. It's like a list. It's just, it's a shortcut. And it's, and people use it also. I mean, I think Dan's approach is saying, well, what if you take this one, one of the four points out? Does it change the core message of the paper? Well, no, but it makes it less novel. And that gets to the... Yeah, I've heard that one. I can- that one's usually like, then I'll turn back and say, okay, why is it less novel if chair is still the chair? And usually it, it doesn't matter. It seems to be more, the more you can get the reviewers into a discussion or the authors into a discussion, the easier it is to address all these things we hate about peer review or statistics or mechanistic detail. Or So if I can change the direction of the conversation slightly, one of the things that when you're thinking about the mythical p-value, the sort of the flip side is when people use it to argue that if the p-value is not 0.05, that you uh, know that they're the same, which I think is even scarier. Yeah. I've never quite understood that one, right? 
I, at least I know like the last lab at Cornell, we used to have like two and a half, three hour lab meetings. And Rob would always beat into us that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. So that one I've never grasped. Like why, if it's like 0.20 of a p-value, people say there's no significant difference. They're not significantly different, but that doesn't mean if you did another environment or if you did like the experiment a thousand times instead of 10 times, maybe it's a really small difference. And I know in our lab, just the last couple of weeks, if there's not a significant difference, we've started taking to saying they're similar. And the word similar kind of has that fuzziness that allows you to, in the future, say, oh, if we did it in salt stress, then of course they changed. In that experiment, they were similar. In this experiment, they're different. And similar just has a little bit of that softer language connotation. I've used something like that, although I usually say indistinguishable in this set of experiments. I mean, part of this came about like I did a sabbatical as a grad student in Jeff Dangle's lab, and I was working on superoxide dismutase antibodies and his old LSD1 mutant. And he had three growth chambers that were from the same supplier, and I would grow plants in all three of them, and they had a completely different superoxide dismutase profile, even though it was the same manufacturer in the same growth chamber and the same soil and the same pots and the same seed batch. And so I realized at that point, things that replicate between two labs are actually quite shocking to me sometimes. Just And sometimes we'll actually do our experiments across like four growth chambers intentionally just so we can get a feel for how stable the mutant is versus how sensitive it is to just the, those environmental changes we think are small but can actually be quite big to the plant. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is it's such an interesting conversation to think about whether what we're publishing is, I'm going to do the air quotes again, a truth. Because... Dan, you were sort of hearkening back to the olden days when it really felt like people would they would do some experiments and they would write up the results and then they would say, here's what we think is happening. And here's, but here's an argument that that might not be happening. And here's the future directions. And I feel like that whole sort of, here's the state of, it's okay for this to be the state of science or the state of our understanding, but it's also okay for that to be mutable and for us to the next, you know, do another set of experiments that might change our mind or like, I feel like that doesn't happen anymore. It's like really has to be like a ladder on the rung of knowledge. But I mean, maybe I shouldn't be talking. So like, I'm some old timey person, but it feels like often papers are written to move us forward only exclusively towards truth. Do you know what I'm saying? I guess it depends. Like, I mean, I've heard that statement, like, is what we're publishing the truth, but only in the last couple of years. Oh, that's interesting. If I think back to like, like when I interviewed here, I interviewed and had to talk to like two of the guys that basically founded plant chemistry and enzymology. And they, if I had used the word the truth with them, they would have just annihilated me, right? Because the truth has sort of this singular connotation that there's one truth. I try to think about it more is, are the papers we are publishing true in the way we did them? Yeah. That doesn't mean it's the universal truth that will apply in every environment and every growth chamber and every species, but is what we put out there true based on how we did it, which I think to me is a little bit different than is what we're publishing the truth. Given all the genotype by environment and species variation and animals, plants, there is no the truth really, but is the paper that was either we're publishing or put in front of me as an editor or reviewer, is it internally true? Honest with reporting it, honest in preparing them, that sort of, and honest in like the materials and methods so that people know what 
was and was not done. The truth gets to sort of the idea of the master regulator, gets to sort of the idea of the important, right? Are those terms actually hindering us in terms of moving forward? To come back to it, but this idea of is which is more important, is the paper done and written in a truthful manner or is it novel? There's a lot of pressure to say this is novel and what's novel about it. The idea of saying, this is what we think our results say, this is what we don't know, this is what we have to do again to be sure about this, just opening the door for someone to say, well, once you've done that next experiment, you'll have shown it and it'll be novel. So come back and you've done the next experiment. And we all want to actually just publish this paper and, and then we can worry about that. Yeah, no, novelty is the toughest. I know I think about novelty very differently since I had Rob was a yeast geneticist, Tom was a evolutionary quant geneticist and Jonathan is a biochemist. And so to me, like a single enzyme or a single metabolite or a single transcription factor in the absence of any like higher order biology, I always struggle finding novelty in that. Whereas like for me, like host pathogen interactions, 10 genes or is it a thousand genes to me is novel, but it's only novel for a year or two. And then you're like, oh, now we've got a thousand. What's novel now? I know, I know as an editor, novelty is the hardest thing. Sometimes the really novel papers really are easy because you're like, oh, I'd never, ever thought of that. But I do think we maybe don't allow people to write those or we punish them for trying to write them because there's so many questions out there that we don't even contemplate asking because we're afraid people are going to say that's just boring. So oftentimes some of the most novel stuff I see is like in the smaller sort of thematic journals where people are describing phenomenon that like, uh, we've never seen that before ever. And those oftentimes are end up having the more novel aspects in 20 or 30 years, whereas like the specific mechanistic novelty papers we're all excited about now sometimes fade away a little bit. Yeah, well, I think we'd both be interested in hearing what you would advise a young person sort of starting out and trying to feel their way around these kinds of issues, novelty and significance. What does a young person do? Do they chase the term novelty? I don't know. Am I the right person to say that? <laughs> well, Dan, you are, you, you are the editor of uh, an editor at four journals and highly esteemed community member, I, I hope. But equally, I've had lots of people tell me you have no science nature as cell papers, so you're a failure. Pardon my French, but fuck them. But no, right, there is, right, the path I have taken was basically I said, what you just said. I think there are these interesting questions and I'm going to bash my head against the NSF funding wall until I get money for what I want to do. And hopefully people will find that exciting or interesting. It did take me, what was it, seven years before I got my first fully funded NSF grant. And I've only been in the job 17 years. And I've only had four or five fully funded grants myself. So, and Right. Like I would have reviews say, like, oh, nobody in their right mind could clone a metabolite QTL. Nobody can use co expression to find enzymes. Nobody can, that UVR8 is definitely not the UVB photoreceptor. Da 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 da. And I don't know if I'd honestly suggest an early career researcher to follow that path nowadays. That is not a fun path and it can be very hard. To me, my personality was the such that. If I got money to do something I was bored with, I was not going to do it well. And so I had to fight to do something that I was really excited about. And so I think for an early career researcher, you really, or even a late mid-career researcher, you really need to ask who are you and what interests you. 
and realize that there are some paths that are going to be much more of a fight. And if that's the way you want to go, prepare for it and hunker down and go for it. And there's other ways that aren't quite as much a fight. I mean, there'll be fights in a different way, but, and so for me, it's figure out what really interests you. Think about whether or not it interests you because it interests everybody else or because you really think it's the way the community should work or move forward. And then constantly ask yourself if you're being nuts. I know I ask myself on a daily basis, like how crazy, like if we find something new, like in this GWAS paper, we've been talking about a little bit, like all the, all the like caveats and tests were basically Jason and I going, how did we screw this up? What could we have done wrong that is creating this pattern? And so that's the way I've kind of operated. And there are other ways to do it. Well, I think that's, I mean, I I do think that's a very good way to think about some of these things where you're not able to do the simple mutant wild type. It's a simple answer to a simple question, but the trying to think through all the ways you can be wrong. And if you can't account for them, at least be clear about why you can't account for them. Looking at your publication record, you there there is a market for those because you've been able to publish a lot of these papers. Uh, I know Dan is very passionate about asking for people who are evaluating publication records to to take into account the actual papers and not where they're published, which I heartily endorse. Whenever I'm a chair of a search committee, I actually try to force the first round to be based on their writing about future teaching and future research solely and not even look at their CV or publication record. Can't even imagine that happening. It, there's a, it's, a CV is such a, I mean, it's, it's sort of the same thing as I was talking about for like P values or what, or, or anything else. It's like the shorthand for quality. Like we're always look, looking for the, the fast route to a decision the quick way to know this person is good, this person is not good. And the trifecta of science nature cell is just such an easy way to just make an evaluation without really thinking. Although as we have discussed on a previous podcast, that is not the best way to do that. I'm just trying to understand why we always seem driven to these sort of shorthand and quick routes to evaluating anything each other or publications or ideas or data it just it seems to be a a common theme is speed well speed and if you have a threshold right and you're wrong you can say oh it was just an experimental or technical error that caused it to cut that threshold whether it be the number of science and nature cell papers for somebody who's hired a p value for an experimental detail or whatever threshold you're using it, it's kind of a at some deep, cynical, biting level, a threshold and a quantitative number is kind of an easy way to accept the chance that you might be wrong, but it's the threshold's fault. If you have to evaluate it on the content, then it becomes more subjective. And if there's an error, it's, it is you and the way you thought about it. Well, I can say with uh, high confidence, p-value of way less than 0.05, that this has been a really interesting and exciting discussion. And I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with us, Dan. If people have follow-up questions or thoughts that they want to share with you, how can they get a hold of you? So the Twitter account is Spicy Betritus. Otherwise, all you have to do is Google search my last name, however you feel like spelling it, and it will find me. <laughs> there are no other Dan Klebensteins in the world. All right. 
Liz, I know there are other Liz Haswells, how, but how can people reach this particular one? This particular one can be found. Um, she has a very a highly novel Twitter feed at, at E Haswell. And you can find my somewhat novel, somewhat quantitative, somewhat significant Twitter presence at, at Baxter TWI. That's at Baxter Twee. And with that, thank you all for listening and thank you again, Dan, for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. The Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant A website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. We get editing help from ASPB Conviron scholar Juniper Kiss and social media and blog post writing help from ASPB intern Katie Rogers. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week. <laughs>